Welcome, Welcome to, to UndocuTalks, Talks, where we navigate through higher education, post-grad, and life with our UCSD Undoc community. Hello, everyone, and happy Friday, as today is the day that we launch our second full-length episode for UndocuTalks. Today's episode is about allyship and what it means to be an ally to the undocumented community. We have invited two lovely guests who are not from the UCSD community. They're actually from across the country, but we've invited them to share with us their experiences as undocumented individuals and to share also what allyship means and looks like to them. So to start us off, I really wanted to bring this article up from the New York Times. And I'm not the biggest fan of New York Times for undisclosed reasons, but it might be applicable to what we're talking about now. So this article talks about healthcare in California in regards to undocumented immigrants, because um, y'all know about how California is trying to shoot for universal healthcare for all, right? Well, Newsom in particular is pushing for Medi-Cal, a healthcare plan for low-income Californians to include undocumented immigrants ages 26 to 49 as well. And it's super exciting. Um, right now, I believe only undocumented people under 26 now and 50 and over starting May, um, according to the article, uh, currently qualify for Medi-Cal. But what really got me thinking was the fact that it took seven to eight years from the Affordable Care Act and just a hell of a long time to even include all undocumented people, right? And this inclusion of undocumented people between 26 and 49, that gap um, would take place in 2024. That's still two years from now, if it passes. And to top it all off, the brief description of the article says, Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled a plan to allow people who are in the country illegally uh, to sign up for Medi-Cal. So here, word choice, it's a, it's a bit problematic, but I digress. While I do believe that this legislation is a long time coming, I can't help but feel like it's the bare minimum Because if you were traveling in another country like Mexico and you got injured or hurt, you would get your medical care either totally paid for or at least subsidized to like a much more affordable amount, which is another reason medical tourism from the United States to Mexico is so huge. But that's besides the point. Overlooking the United States' corrupt healthcare system, the fact is that undocumented residents are only beginning to receive some of the civil and human liberties that all of us should have access to all the time. When we think about allyship, some may say that this bill is indicative of a government who has allies working within it and is now actively trying to align itself with the cause. But allyship does not have a clear definition, and it also varies how a whole government can demonstrate allyship versus, say, a small business, a corporation, or an individual person. You know, I definitely would consider myself an ally to the undocumented community, but it's also important to consider if they would consider me to be an ally to them. I think to call yourself an ally, you must be able to also understand that you do not know everything. And to learn and support them, you have to open the space for these people to discuss and demand what they want. So there's issues in allyship within the undocumented community, but we have these lovely folks who identify within the undocumented community to really give us a better insight on allyship. Yeah, so today we have two wonderful guests from two very different parts of the country who are ready to share their stories and voices. Brian and Miriam, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So with both of you being undocumented professionals or documented, Brian and Miriam, you both have had really unique experiences within your respective industries. Um, Specifically for Miriam, my question is that you've mentioned working for a company that deals with vulnerable populations directly affected by, say, COVID-19 and Hurricane Ida, many of them being undocumented and or immigrant populations as well. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's like working there and what you have learned from working with such individuals? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So I work for uh, New York Project Hope, which is based here in New York. And essentially, we are providing mental health resources, uh, anything from housing, food, clothing, 
in the case of Hurricane Ida, even money uh, for any of the families that have been impacted by COVID or Hurricane Ida. Um, our job essentially as crisis counselors are to be available to talk um, to the populations here in New York, specifically Westchester County, uh, and, and connect uh, people with resources, uh, whether it's mental health resources or um, resources that they need um, to get on with their lives or work or connecting them with anything and everything that that is our job, um, not only to help them in their lives, but also listen to them, hear their stories. And what I have found uh, from a year now of working with them is that there is a huge immigrant population that has been disproportionately affected, even more so than I want to say a typical um, white middle-class family. Um, our populations have been hit the worst. Um, anything from not being able to access uh, grant money or uh, government help uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, when you're undocumented, you don't get that. Um, and there's a lot of things that have been kept uh, from populations like ours. And as an immigrant, I've tried to look for resources that are that are available and that don't need citizenship in order to help these people. So that's that's been my experience working in New York Project Hope. Thank you for letting us know a little bit more about what it's like to work in this specific type of healthcare position. I wanted to follow up more specifically on the mental health resources that you mentioned providing with New York Project Hope. How important do you think this type of work is, especially in terms of providing them to underrepresented communities and identities? And how do you see uh, what, how, or how it's helping? Absolutely. Uh, so one thing that I do want to highlight uh, for New York Project Hope is that we are a free, confidential, and anonymous service. Uh, and most of our crisis counselors are bilingual. So just having that uh, animosity, as well as uh, having that bicultural aspect uh, with the people that we work with, uh, we're better able to connect to the people that um, to the people that we serve that need help the most. Um, mental health services are extremely important, and it's it's been extremely rewarding to be able to help. Um, Families like families like mine that have been disproportionately affected um, with housing, uh, with clothing, um, and it's something even when it's something as simple as them venting uh, to us, there's a there's a place of just commonality that is so empowering, but also bands us together, and I think that's something that has made our community here that much more stronger just because we've been able to connect with the populations that we serve. And part of that, which is helping hearing them vent or understanding what it's like and having that commonality uh, that's helped many of the people here. Um, and especially in my case, um, I've had people reach out to me and tell me, this is what I was able to do with the help that you gave me, and this is how my life has been better because of it. And that is something that is extremely rewarding for me. That's awesome to hear. And the point that you bring up about having counselors who are bilingual and bicultural, that really does make so much of a difference for people of color or, or underrepresented identities when they are searching for a therapist or a support system. It seems like there are not nearly enough mental health professionals that are able to truly relate to some of their patients and like truly understand them. And I think it is important because, at least in my own experience with therapy, um, to be able to really make progress in therapy, you have to be able to truly connect with the therapist and feel as if you're being heard and understood. So that's incredible to hear. I'm so glad that you're able to provide that kind of important and intersectional approach for these people. But now that we've touched on the cultural aspect of your job, what about your legal status? Do you feel like you're undocumented or DACA status gives you another unique perspective within the medical field, or is it just more so your racial and cultural identities? 
That is a great question, and I feel that it's because of my status and everything that I've gone through being undocumented and later under DACA that I'm able to understand everything that they tell me. Um, for example, perhaps with another um, crisis counselor, um, I've had experiences where they give very generic advice or generic help, like, oh, just apply for this government thing, apply for this government thing, and they may not know intuitively that, oh, this person might be undocumented and they might not even know how to find, how to even use a computer or how to even um, search for things. It's, it's a lot of you don't know what you don't know. And I have found that because I was undocumented, because I'm now under DACA, because I come from a mixed status family of undocumented parents, a brother with citizenship, me under DACA, um, I process things more intuitively when I hear them, when I hear their uncertainty, when they share things or certain inflections, like, oh, I'll get around to it. Or I know what it means because it's something I've heard in my house. It's something that I've heard all my life. Um, and I think having that intuition has allowed me to, one, save a lot of time and cut back on, like, running around and trying to... And getting, you know, like, it's, it's kind of like having a shortcut. Um, instead of them giving me a runaround, I know exactly what they mean when they say it just because I've heard it here. Uh, so it makes it that much uh, faster and efficient for me to, one, be able to do my job, which is help them, and to also make them feel comfortable. Like, oh, this is one of my people. This is someone that understands that I can relate to. So... 1,000% my background and my immigrant background has definitely helped me to connect with the people that I help. I'm so, so happy to hear that. It's really amazing how much representation can truly impact someone in such a vital aspect of life, such as healthcare. But other than your DACA status, what about those who are not undocumented and perhaps consider themselves allies and want to enter the medical field specifically to help with underrepresented communities, how important do you think it is for them to be educated allies? Or obviously it is important, but more specifically, how does implicit bias work within the medical or healthcare industry and how can allies address that? I have found that in these times, it's it's much easier uh, to be an ally than maybe what it was during the Trump administration. Um, I think being a good ally starts with understanding uh, rhetoric, what should be used, what shouldn't, um, advocating. And I think it's extremely important for allies to be, first of all, open to even doing something like that and not feeling bad about having their privilege. Um, I think in this day and age, it's very important to, one, understand your privilege and use it to help those that don't have it. Um, so for people that are not undocumented, that are working in the medical field, their legal status is only, I would say, like, not even a, a big part of it. Just even if you're just a minority, you already understand a million times more uh, what it's like and what your experiences in healthcare for you and your family, family are like, much more than a person who is white. Um, and I hate to be so crude about it, but... Um, Legal or not, you're, if you're a minority, there's, al there's already a commonality. Um, so if you're an ally and you identify uh, with the populations that you serve, you're already doing a huge thing. Um, if you share the same language and you use it, um, the cultural aspects of your personality, um, that's already doing so much more than someone who isn't. And when you're an ally, you know, yeah, you have privilege. But there's also ways that you don't have privilege. And the fact that that all brings us together um, helps us help others. Thank you so much for sharing, Miriam. Now I will let Kwong lead into some questions for Brian. Yeah, so to brief briefly introduce Brian, um, he operates under the pseudonym of EMS Creative as a queer and undocumented artist in Denver, Colorado. Um, so Brian, just really quickly, could you describe yourself, what you do, and what it's like to run your own, your own um, artistic business? Totally. <clears throat> um, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be able to share 
both my experiences and lived experiences in a documented person, um, but also what the identity means in the um, business space, in the art space, because I think it's really important um, to the listeners as well. But hello, everyone. My name is Brian Montez. I go by the uh, artist name Yams, Y-A-M-Z, and I run a small creative studio here in Denver. We help a lot of small businesses, primarily businesses of color, women-owned businesses, and queer-owned businesses with their design work, whether it comes to logos or custom illustrations. And I also run a small arts brand under the names The Yams World of Color, where we sell identity-driven art that kind of touches on being queer, being undocumented, and being a person of color. Um, and with that also comes a lot of the art that I make is really driven by my lived experience, uh, being an undocumented person, um, a queer person, and a person of color, of course. And you'll find that all over my art uh, on social media and the stuff that I do um, in-house. So that's a little bit about me. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, so one big question I wanted to ask is how does being undocumented influence navigating your business and work? Totally. Um, I think that's a great question and, you know, a great foundation for the conversation that we're going to have. I honestly think that, uh, you know, having my own business was one of the few ways that I was able to regain control of my own life as an undocumented person. And when it comes to being undocumented, you're so bogged down by the things that you cannot do and not the things that you can do compared to our, um, you know, citizen or uh, documented counterparts here in the United States. And I think for a lot of different undocumented people across this, the, uh, the country, you know, owning your own business and having this either, you know, main hustle or side hustle is really important because it allows us to make own, our own decisions and allows us to work with the people that we want to work with and do the things that we think are going to provide value for both our families, ourselves and our community. Um, I think one thing that I've seen that ties a lot of undocumented business owners together is that they're not just in it to make money or to, um, you know, fulfill their own uh, personal go- goals, which is, you know, definitely part of it. But it's a, a lot of times it's community driven and they see that advancing themselves and advancing their business will lead to changes down the road. Um, one thing I'm super proud of, and I think it's something that looking back on has been one of the greatest accomplishments over the past few years is growing a um, really cool network of undocumented business owners that are all over the place in New York, Colorado, Florida, um, uh, Washington, and California. A lot of people in California. Um, I'll give a huge shout out to uh, Adelita's Apparel and uh, the Adelita Sisters because they're one of the leading uh, you know, undocumented businesses in the U.S. and they're very much community driven. And it goes to show you how this almost um, unfortunate identity has given us so much power to be able to make the changes that we want to make uh, and control our own destinies. So I think uh, that's one of the, you know, that is the number one point when it comes to that question. I will say there are some more, you know, logistical challenges um, here and there when it comes to uh, running your own business and being undocumented. But what I will say is, you know, going the route of owning your own business as an undocumented person is one of the easier ways to earn money and to do it in a legitimate way. Um, I have the privilege of being a doc, uh, having DACA or being documented, as some people say. Um, and so that means if I did decide that I didn't want to do my own business, I could go work for another private agency or private entity. Uh, but I found a love of, you know, both art uh, products and helping people. And I think it's uh, the, the best thing that I can do for myself right now. Um, I will say, though, that the undocu hustle is not for everyone. And I think at some points it can be a little toxic just because when it comes to the uh, gripes of capitalism, there is a lot to think about when it comes to how much of your own productivity and time you're putting into your own business, right? You're not you're no longer working for someone else and helping someone else succeed. You're doing it for yourself and how much you do uh, at the end of the day impacts how uh, successful you are. So there's definitely the, its drawbacks, but I think at the forefront, it's um, owning your own business and being undocumented is one of the best ways to kind of uh, bring get back your power and build community. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate how um, you've been able to kind of share that you've been given this autonomy and independence and through your owning your own business and 
um, despite logistical challenges of being undocumented and running a business and the implications of the um, undocumented hustle, you know, under capitalism, of course. Um, I also wanted to ask, um, do you think your identities um, centering queerness and racial and ethnic identity also affects um, how you navigate the professional world since they're uh, plenty of our um, listeners listeners may uh, identify as queer and as people of color as well. Yeah, totally. Um, I love how you how you describe it too. I always forget to say that it's like giving myself the agency, right, to be able to do what I want and make the choices that I want for my own life. Um, and I also think that a lot of those other identities really play a huge role in the work I do and the people I work with specifically. Um, I am very big on core values. And, you know, core values for me include um, social justice and equity and um, gender equality and uh, LGBTQIA plus issues, uh, because I am uh, a gay man, but I, I think I identify mostly with queerness. And um, my queerness and, you know, the othering of sorts comes from being undocumented and gay, because that's a very specific identity that comes with its own mental health challenges and its own, um, you know, tough struggles that we have to do independently because few and far between are there people that will talk about their um, challenges of being both gay and undocumented, let alone just undocumented. So it does come to its own specific issues. In regards to, uh, you know, navigating the professional world with those identities, for me, I think I've been really able to see that the people I want to work with are going to support me no matter what. Um, and I think they know that my story of being undocumented and being queer adds to the work that I'm going to do. I rarely work with folk that um, don't see that or don't agree with that. And I've made it a big point in my own business to work with mostly people of color, queer people, or women um, who need, you know, whatever design service that they're looking for. So I've been really able to take my positions on my core values to a business stance and be successful in that way as well. So if for anyone listening out there who is either you know wanting to start their own business or not start their own business. Um, and also, as a sidebar, you can be undocumented and be an independent contractor, which means that you kind of operate as, a, as your own business, but you work for other people and they kind of they pay you as like an independent contractor and stuff. So you kind of operate like that. So for anyone looking to either be a private contractor or start their own business, uh, it's important that you take the time to think about what's important to you and what you're going to be you know really firm on whether it's I won't work with these people um, or I really want to work with these people because they embody what I'm trying to do. I think more and more we're moving into a time, especially with Gen Z, that we see that uh, the more that you care about something or the more that we can see that um, some kind of corporation, business entity or, or nonprofit is doing the work and putting, you know, walking the walk and not just talking the talk, um, will go further and will make me want to work with you more than someone who's not. So I think it's a it's a two way street, right? Um, make sure that you know who you are and what you value, and make sure that the person you're working with or the people that you're working with embody that as well. Um, because there's going to be a conflict within you when they're not putting in that work, and then you say, you know, what am I really doing this for? Um, so yeah, to leave you with like kind of a, a bullet point of that is to um, take stock of who you are, what you want, and what you believe in, because that's going to really impact whatever work you do, um, art or not. Thank you. I love all of that. Yeah, as a person who is also queer and also an immigrant, um, definitely prioritizing the people that I work with and what type of career pathway that fits my values or, fit, or at least friendly to those values is really important to me as well. So it's really validating to hear all of that. Um, and I guess the last point that I want to touch, I know that you have a considerable um, considerable presence on TikTok. Um can you describe a bit of that, your TikTok career maybe? And a question um, to that is, how does mainstream media react to someone with your type of of, of your identity um, personally? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I love the uh, considerable um, descriptor because I honestly think that's uh, where I am right now because I'm not like massive, but I'm also not just starting out and not small. Um, and that's something I've had to grapple with myself is how do I want to show up in these spaces and who am I when I show up in these spaces? Um, I'll also kind of 
to go back a little bit, um, all, I think, and, and it ties into the question is a lot of the times, uh, unfortunately, we only support uh, undocumented folk who are in the spotlight or, you know, are willing to put themselves in the spotlight. Um, that also means that we support undocumented students who are very um, academically focused or really want to push in their academic careers um, and usually are the higher achievers. And this uh, kind of gold standard of immigrant or gold standard of uh, undocumented student is something that we actually need to would, you know, love to reflect on as a society of why um, we only deem certain people worthy of uh, help, aid or anything like that, um, because when it comes down to it, uh, no matter who you are in your uh, in your status, you should be able to have the same resources and opportunities as someone else um, who is, you know, someone who just wants to go and work on cars all day versus the guy who wants to get their doctorate program. Right. Um, and so I think that's something that we need to talk about more as a society. Also, tying back to your question, um, I think it's really interesting um, just, just as, a, as a top line view. Most of my videos about my art do not receive the t- same attention as my videos about my undocumented status or making fun of my un- undocumented status. And I think that kind of just speaks to the culture of social media and, and TikTok specifically is, um, you know, comedy really works best and, and being able to make light of a unfortunate situation is really where people are, are looking at these days. And it's fun. I love making fun of my status and I love making fun of the, um, what is the irony of, you know, being here and uh, not being able to travel or go anywhere and make jokes about it because it is a coping mechanism. And I don't think I'd be able to, you know, get on with my daily life without it and being able to make fun of it. Um, the unfortunate situation we find ourselves. But at the same time, it's also about building community, kind of going back to your first question, because a lot of people, the supporters, the people that are commenting and the people that are wanting to see more are other undocumented folks. And other queer folk or, you know, other undocumented queer folk who see someone like themselves in me and want to see more. Because a lot of the times, especially when you have such heavy identities and identities that um, tell people or uh, sorry, identities that people say to hide, you are left in this void of not having anyone else to talk through these um, very unique challenges. And so TikTok has been a really great place for me to see that there's other people like me out there. I didn't see other undocumented people or um, see other people like me until I kind of got to college, truly. And now in a post-college life uh, where we are kind of more or less isolated, and especially in a pandemic right now, um, TikTok has been a great place to see that there is a uh, overwhelming majority of undocumented people that want to support you and want to see you do amazing things. So if anything, it is definitely a community building tool that I um, sometimes do get bogged down a little bit because uh, I want my art to be at the forefront of the conversation right on my page, but it's okay because I'll, I'll definitely get there. And I think it's a great foundation to go off of. So thank you for asking. Kwong. Yeah, of course. It's really good to um, hear that you're seeing other undocumented people on TikTok um, as the only other space that you've said was only college. And since it's not a post-college era, um, You've been feeling more isolated, but it's good to see that you've, you reap the benefits of being on TikTok. Um, but yeah, we'll transition to the next part. I'll give the microphone to Jeleni. So we talked about where you are right now in your careers, but I think it would also be important for our listeners to hear about how your experiences growing up, or at least before professional life, have shaped you to be who you are today. Uh, now we'll start with sharing a story about my own childhood, which was growing up Mexican-American, but living in a small town in Arizona, which, well, Arizona does have Mexican communities, but the town which I lived in was predominantly white. And I remember when I started kindergarten, it was kind of a shock. I remember it so clearly because no one else in the class looked like me, and I only spoke Spanish after having only been around my family. So it was then in that kindergarten class that I realized I was different than everyone else. And although I'm not undocumented, I'm sure there was a moment in your lives, Miriam and Brian, where you may have also felt the same way. Um, Whoever would like to share first, but I'm curious if either of you had kind of an aha moment about your identity like me. Yeah, I can can start first. Thanks for sharing that, Yuleni. I think it's a experience that I think a lot of, um, you know, not just undocumented people, but other identities um, face in their everyday life. Um, the, for me, the story goes that my uh, 
middle school was having a trip to San Diego, um, and my parents wouldn't let me go um, because it was too close to the border, and that's the first time I found out I was undocumented. But to fast forward to a more, you know, in a situation that you explained in college, um, applying to universities was, sorry, excuse me, in, in high school, applying to universities was really hard because a lot of schools didn't consider you a, a student um, of the United States, basically. Um, a university, which I won't name, down the street um, in Denver, you know, from my own house, classified me as an international student. And I think that was the first time in my life that I kind of realized that mm, this is like considerably different than I thought. And I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, or, or I really didn't know what this was until that moment. And it did feel a little degrading. Um, and I think, especially as a, um, a stuck up high schooler, I, my ego was hurt because I thought like, here I was living um, down the street from this place all my life. And, you know, you, you have the gall to classify me as an international student. It really hurt. It really did. Um, and I just felt kind of thrown away and kind of thrown to the wind um, because of their classification and something that I can't control. Thanks for sharing, uh, Brian. My experiences have kind of paralleled yours. Um, I would say that mine started uh, when I was very, very young. I would say maybe nine or ten. I grew up knowing that something was different about us. Uh, if my parents were sick, they would rarely go to the doctor, despite me telling them or other people telling them to. They would always kind of find a way to cure it themselves here, like, holistically, right? And I thought, okay, maybe it's because we are low income. And I grew up having that mentality until, like Brian, I got to high school. And my parents had always placed an emphasis on me doing super, super well in my studies. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe they just want me to be smart or try to get a scholarship. And it wasn't until that I was applying uh, where they sat me down and they told me, look, you're undocumented. Um, however, you're going to go to college, you're going to have to figure out a way to pay for it because we can't afford it. Uh, we're undocumented. We don't get paid what we should. Um, so you're going to have to figure it out. And that to me was one of the most, not one of the most hardest, but it was definitely... Um, it definitely impacted my identity and how I had felt about myself. I guess I thought that if I did everything right, if I did everything that I was supposed to, I went to school, I got the grades, I showed up and I did everything that I could, then I would be able to go to college because I deserved it, right? And as time went on, despite the fact that I live here in very liberal uh, New York State, um, I quickly found out that I had to do above and beyond uh, what I was supposed to do just so I could be on an equal playing field. Um, and for me, since then, uh, that's just kind of been how I've been living my life. And it's it's unfair because there's this huge pressure that when you're undocumented, you just you have to do everything right. And not just do it right, you have to do it well. And growing up like that and living like that, no matter where you are, um, it's that experience is, is the same. And that's just been very difficult to grow up like that. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Brian and Miriam, for sharing your stories. I, I know those are very personal, but we really appreciate you sharing because it really reveals how much of an extra emotional burden it is to be undocumented in the United States and on a child, nonetheless, as a child. I don't think it is ever really easy to reflect on that, at least for me. And if I struggled with my identity so much, I can't even think how comparable it would be to what either of you might have experienced. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. But right now, I also want to ask Miriam about the mental health resources that your college or higher education institution provided for you. And Brian, we'll get to you, of course, after. But did you all feel like you could seek them out or why or why not? That is a great question. And Growing up here in New York, it's arguably, you know, New York and California, it's probably one of the best places. Uh, if you're going to be undocumented, it's probably the best to have your roots here. Um, I would say that in terms of mental health resources, which is why I put such an emphasis um, on them in my life now, is because I didn't have that growing up. When I went to college, I was thrown in, uh, and I had to very quickly figure out 
how I was, it, it was either sink or swim, right? And in terms of mental health resources, there weren't any. And a large part of that reason is because there are not people that relate or that can actually comprehend what it's like to be undocumented or documented and be in a place of higher education. I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome all throughout college and even now as I'm preparing to take the MCAT and apply for medical school this cycle. It's something that is consistently in it's it's in it's intrinsic. It's it's like you can do everything right, you can have all the accolades, you can have all the awards, you can have everything and on paper be very smart, but what I wish uh, that my college would have done uh, would have been to provide mental health resources to help students like me that were struggling with, am I even, should I even be here? Um, and helping me answer those questions and not just leaving me, you know, leaving me alone in, in that sense. Um, and aside from that, uh, the mental health resources, just, you know, other resources, fast about financial aid, am I going to afford it? Do I qualify? Do I not? Um, and being barred from even having experiences in research because I'm not a citizen or a permanent resident. Um, I just wish that there had been like a liaison or some someone that I can talk to about my experiences, one, but also someone that I can identify with and someone that would be able to understand from experience. Um, so I didn't have that before, but it's largely one of the reasons why I advocate and I speak about my status like Brian, um, because if you don't have a community, maybe if you haven't had one in the past, make your own. Um, so that that has been my experience with uh, mental health and, and higher education. Right. It is so disappointing how lacking the mental health resources are at colleges and universities when college students are arguably one of the most stressed group of individuals and then if you combine being a student with being first gen, low income, and or undocumented, it really feels impossible sometimes. And suffice to say, mental health resources and accessibility to them is still lacking all over the country. But I mean, especially for college students who pay so much tuition to their universities, and you would really think that they would be able to provide, you know, decent support and make it accessible. But Anyways, Brian, do you have any of the same sentiments as Miriam regarding the resources you had on campus? How was your experience with that? Yeah, totally. Um, thanks for sharing, Miriam. I think there are definitely a lot of similarities, um, probably just because the undocumented experience is unfortunately so common amongst everywhere you go. Um, there's no one really who's doing it correctly, especially when it comes to support, I would say. Um, but for me and my higher education experience, um, we had to advocate for a lot of the things that um, a lot of places in California specifically already have or are already implemented. And obviously, this is a case-by-case -case basis when it comes to it. But um, one of the things that I think we rarely talk about when it comes to the mental health challenges of being undocumented and, you know, seeking help is that you go to these professionals and then they just don't know what you're talking about. Um, how many times do you go into a therapist's office and then, like, what's, what's being undocumented and what's DACA? And what are all these things? And then you have to sit there for your 50-minute session and take 30 minutes out of your 50-minute session just to talk about what that is and inform them. And it's, you know, mentally taxing. You're not even there to talk about that. Well, you kind of are. But um, you have to go and then, you know, have to um, educate someone who's uneducated and just waste your time. And that's one thing I was seeing consistently over and over again. Um, because a lot of universities do offer, like, um, free sessions at the university health center. Um, but I just thought every single time I, I would go or schedule something that I'm just going to have to sit here and tell this person what I'm going through and then have no idea what it means. And so I think to really have a, a deep conversation about what it means to support undocumented students, we have to start by uh, taking the time, energy, and resources to educate our professionals and the people that are working at these higher ed institutions, you know, from both the faculty side and the staff and administration side. Um, it can't just be like that. Um, I, when I went to university, there was like dream trainings, and I thought that was a great step forward. And two hours is definitely not enough, but two hours to sit down and have a basically a seminar on vocabulary and what it means to be this and what it means to be that. And I think that's a great way forward and something that I saw my university implementing 
that I think is uh, doing lots of good things. Um, I was I was president of the student, undocumented student group the, in 2016 when um, the former president was elected and when uh, the uh, AG rescinded DACA. And so that was a really tough time in, I think, a lot of our minds and, and, and uh, experiences. And it was up to me and a group of undocumented students to come forward to the university president and, president and ask them for you know protection when it comes to uh, ICE and law enforcement more mental health services and get a mental health counselor who specifically can help uh, not just undocumented students, but people of color and can understand what it means to be an immigrant and, and uh, have DACA or be undocumented and things like that. And so there was so much need that we had to ask for. And a lot of those things did get implemented. And one thing that I'm super proud of is being able to be at the forefront of that when it comes to um, the Colorado State University system and, um, you know, universities as a whole in Colorado. Um, we made a lot of great uh, progress with that. Obviously, it's not perfect, and there's still a long way to go. But it's almost—I always tell uh, every time we were, you know, in a meeting, I would always tell the people there that like this shouldn't be a thing. We shouldn't have to be meeting every week. Like, there's no point. Like, in a perfect world, like this doesn't exist, right? Um, and that's what we all need to, you know, look for our future when where no one has to go through these challenges and no one has to be put in a situation where they have to, can do certain things or have their rights limited because of their status. Um, and I, you know, if there's any students out there listening to this who are uh, motivated, I would really recommend just auditing your campus and auditing your spaces to see how, you know, undocumented friendly they really are. And uh, do you have to tell, do you have to keep educating people about what this is? And do you have to educate older people about what this is? Because there's no reason for you to do that. There's plenty of information out there for you to, um, educate yourself and understand what at least the vocabulary and the terminology is, right? Obviously not the lived experiences, but there's enough things out there so you can go and um, get yourself an education on what it means to be undocumented. Um, and so I think that's a huge struggle in itself is just getting to a point where we can understand, you know, what people are facing. Absolutely, Brian. And I'm hoping that this podcast is one of the ways that we can get the word out and people can educate themselves and although we are representing or marketing this for undocumented students, this podcast is for anyone at all to listen to. And I believe it is just as important for those who are documented to listen and to learn from these undocumented individuals themselves. Sometimes as allies, we think we're doing things with good intention and good heart. But if we are not truly educated on what this community wants and desires by hearing it from them directly, then we are just speaking over them. So again, thank you so much for both of you being here. I also want to know for anyone who is listening who may be a student or faculty or staff associated with UCSD in any way, the university does have a training called UndocU Ally Training, which you can access through the UC Learning Center. And that training is kind of what Brian suggested. It trains you on what the right terminology is to use and how to support each other within UC San Diego. But of course, there's always ways to build up on that, which is what I want to ask about right now. Um, I think allyship becomes the big question after talking about what kind of challenges undocumented students and individuals have faced um, and talking about what currently is working about allyship and what isn't. So oftentimes I see allies who are working together with undocumented folks, but these are people who are already in agreement on immigrant rights. So my question is, how do we spread our education to those who may have grown up ignorantly or may still carry xenophobic attitudes towards immigrants? And I know that is a handful of a question and we're not going to have all like the fleshed out answers, but I would just love to hear what you think, uh, what more can be done. That is such an important question to ask because a lot of people don't ask it. Um, how to be not just an ally, but an effective one. Uh, and I think it begins with, like I mentioned before, using correct language. Uh, we don't call people illegal. People can't be illegal, right? It, it starts off very basic, and as you move up, uh, it's advocacy uh, with legislation or something as simple as voting. I know a lot of people that have the privilege of voting that choose not to do so. That's another way to to start, right? And it's, um, it's just being of service, right? And not self-serving. Um, 
helping close friends and family, being there, um, being there for people that are undocumented or documented. And when politics are going crazy, just being a, just being like there to just listen to them struggle or just, you know, helping us pass legislation. Um, and, and again, that's through, that's through advocacy, right? Understanding and owning your privilege and your access to things um, is super important. And aside from that, being aware of intersectionality, right? Being an immigrant is just one, one part of your identity, right? There's sexuality, there's um, color, there's gender, there's religion, there's, there's so many things. And I think once you realize or you become more open to hearing other people's stories, and not feeling as if you're being attacked by it, or even if you are part of the system or part of the problem, it's taking action to to say, how can I help, right? And how can I be of service instead of just taking that? Um, because I have found in my experience that when I share stories of how people have discriminated against me, I often get, um, well, it's not everybody, right? But it just takes one. Um, so I think just doing it for yourself, um, being an ally and being able to help um, through legislation or advocacy, that already there is an incredible thing because not a lot of people will do it. Um, and having conversation, that is arguably the most important thing, right? There's only so much uh, literature you can read on it, but when you go out and you have these hard conversations with people that are undocumented, people of color, people are you know citizens who were undocumented now aren't um there's a richness in experience that you will not get through literature because words sometimes don't do it justice when you hear somebody and you take the time and you give them that space and you know your full and undivided attention that that's already doing more than i would say even the politicians of this country right so that's super important i think to be an ally Thank you, Miriam. Yeah, I think at least for myself, since I consider myself an ally, one thing I can do is just amplify the voices of those who should be heard. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. And um, Brian, what else would you like to add to that? Yeah, totally. I think Miriam hit a lot of great points um, when it comes to intentional allyship. Um, I think one thing we rarely talk about just because of the, vo the vocabulary kind of conversation was going on is just um, being open to hearing what other folks have to say. For example, um, I know that like a lot of the dreamer narrative is going away now because um, it, it's really important to reflect on where that came from, where that started, and, and you know, where are we now? Um, as a ex self-proclaimed dreamer, I don't call that, I don't call myself that anymore. It was a, it was a really easy way to describe, you know, who we are and what we were going through. But unfortunately, that was a term made by um, lawmakers in the state to give us a nice and fancy name to wrap up and to allow people to um, come to the cause and to gather people for the cause, which maybe worked in, in the moment and worked when it needed to. But now we're getting to a point where we're not just talking about uh, undocumented youth or undocumented young people. We're talking about the community as a whole. And uh, acknowledging that undocumentedness and immigrantness um, extends past the youth and extends past those who are just in college. It, it, it permeates throughout the entire immigrant community. Um, there's a lot of people facing a lot of really bad things in the world and some people who don't have opportunities like the rest of us do, um, especially those in, in higher education. And it truly is not justice until everyone has the same opportunities um, as, you know, even people with DACA do. Um, there's so much, uh, there's a lot of tough battles to fight, you know, between friends who, you know, one can have DACA and one can't have DACA. Like, you're already limited in that way. Families who, like mine, you know, uh, have citizen siblings and undocumented siblings, you know, what does a conversation around that look like? It's, it's so deep and so um, nuanced that I think people don't realize that. And the more you educate yourself on that, the better you are going to be for when laws and um, the de jure uh, government comes to make changes if they ever do, right? And so knowledge mixed with privilege can really, you know, put, put us in, a right, in the right place to make some change. Um, and if you have that voting privilege and you have citizen privilege, 
um, it's up to you to, you know, really fight and fight hard for us because we unfortunately sometimes can't. We have voices and we have, uh, you know, the ability to do certain things. But when it comes to actual law abiding change, that's where you can step in and, and do a lot for us. Um, if there's anyone who really would like to know the um, challenges uh, that undocumented students specifically face, there's a wonderful um, study done by the uh, UCLA called Under the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, which uh, takes a deep dive into mental health statistics in undocumented students across the U.S. Um, it's a little old now. It was written in 2014, but I think it's still um, relevant to the day and age that we're, we're trying to fight through. So that's a great place to start, in my opinion. Um, and I, I, think that, I think that's it. I'm trying to think if there's anything else um, regarding allyship that I wanted to touch on. Uh, oh, oh, the other, yeah, yeah. The other thing is um, kind of like Miriam said, having conversations. Um, people rarely do anything about anything in their life unless it's important to them, and there's something, uh, someone around them, like that's facing that challenge. Um, a, a, an easy example is, you know, when a family member has cancer or something like that, we're likely to go out to a cancer walk or to raise money for cancer, right? In the same way that if you don't have an immigrant person in your life or you don't have an undocumented person in your life, it can be really easy to set aside those uh, issues and it can be really easy to dismiss a lot of the work that's happening because you are uneducated about it. Start having more conversations. There's plenty of YouTube videos. There's plenty of people on TikTok. There's plenty of people on social media who will describe every facet of undocumented challenges that there is. And it's up to you to go out there and look for it, even if there's no one in your immediate circle. But once you can empathize with the um, challenge that we face on a daily basis, you're more likely to see that there is a lot of change to be done. And so the more empathy that you can give is the more the more radical that you're going to be in the decisions that you make uh, regarding uh, your allyship. And then lastly, uh, there's something to be said about allyship versus uh, 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 oh, I, I lost it. Um, there's another term. It's uh, uh, accompliceship. Sorry. Yeah. Accomplice. So allies versus accomplices. And an accomplice, if you think like a, a you know, a bank heist, it means you're going down with someone and you help them to do whatever is happening. And so when we talk about allyship, allyship sometimes can be very, very um, small. And there are some people think that sharing something on social media is allyship, which in, on a level it is. But real, true, um, going the distance allyship means, um, you know, going down with us in, in, when it comes down to the tough challenges and going out to marches and talking to people and fighting and yelling. When it comes to the issue, it's not just being there when it's convenient. It's being there when it's hard. And that's the difference between allyship and accompliceship. Those are very powerful words, Brian. And I hope it resonates with the rest of the audience as it has with me. I think we have learned so, so much and there's still so much more to be learned. But I will let Kwong share our final speaking point for the day. For sure. Um, so final question. I know you all have expressed how individuals can be allies. Um, how do you think bigger entities such as organizations, companies, corporations, and governments um, can be um, better in docu-allies? Um, I can start. I think one of the easiest ways <clears throat> for larger entities, community organizations, co corporations can be better um, allies and accomplices is first is to hire um, immigrants and more undocumented people to do their work. Um, because there are very easy legal ways to hire more undocumented people to work for you um, and make sure that it's work that they want to do, right? You can definitely hire a lot of people for translating itself. We're living in an international economy where a lot of people are speaking Spanish or uh, a lot of dialects, um, not just from Mexico or South America. There's a lot of undocumented people we don't talk about that's from Haiti and from um, East Asia and those types of places um, that can be really easily forgotten. And so um, those skills are invaluable when it comes to corporations. For me specifically, too, you know, hire more undocumented artists and undocumented creators to make your stuff. Um, because when it comes down to it, if you really want to put your money where your mouth is, hire them. Give them a chance to make their own lives better by giving them money. Um, money talks, baby. And it's no secret that money makes the world go round. So if you really want to see someone thrive, start hiring more immigrants and more undocumented people. Um, because that's one way to directly impact someone's life and directly impact someone 
um, career, honestly, right? It's, you're not just giving them money, you're giving them opportunity to start uh, having that domino effect in their own personal career. Um, so I think that's one of the easiest ways for anyone to make a change when it comes to um, undocumented people is we know that the laws are very slow moving. We know that it's really hard to get anything past these days. So start shelling out some money because you have it. And more than likely, we are willing to go above and beyond for that. And we have skills that, that you need. I agree a thousand percent uh, with what Brian said. One of the best ways you can do is employ undocumented immigrants and, you know, don't don't take advantage of them, right? Like basic human decency, don't, you know, charge them, uh, don't pay them less, don't, you know, don't abuse your power. Um, and I would say in terms of money, donate to organizations that help undocumented immigrants, perhaps even sponsor um, undocumented immigrants or or anybody or um, have like um, money set aside to pay for legal fees. Um, there are so many things, um, you know, definitely, definitely though, donate, donating to uh, organizations that help or sponsoring someone. Um, if you, there's a student there, maybe help cover their tuition, right? It's, it's things like that that are going to make an impact in the lives of these people, of our community directly. Right, and that's definitely what Brian said. The best way to impact is when you do it directly, and you don't just, you know, circumvent that or um, have like performative activism. Right, um, even though that's important, um, you know, saying how you like showing solidarity, it's important. But at the end of it, it's like very performative, right? Like posting something isn't the same as helping someone. So when you put your money where your mouth is. That's really where change happens. Absolutely, of course. And I want everyone to know that, you know, there may be allies out there who want to help, like me, a broke college student who wishes they had the funds to provide to the people they care about and want to see them thrive. But ultimately, we really shouldn't be shaming individuals who want to help, but looking and channeling our anger towards the corporation, corporations who hoard an absurd amount of wealth exploit other people's labor, most likely including undocumented individuals, and then claim to be immigrant-friendly and worldly, but I digress. As we run out of time, I just want to give an extremely, extremely humble and gracious thank you to Brian and Miriam for taking the time to speak with us here at UndocuTalks today. Your comments and experiences are invaluable, and I cannot wait to share them with the rest of the UC San Diego community. If you have any final words, please go ahead. I would just like to start off by giving you, Yuleni, and you, Juan, just big props for having this podcast and for giving voices to people like Brian and I. Um, it's something so important and so necessary and very much needed because I'm not sure about the audience that you reach, but I know that the, the domino effect uh, is going to be, the butterfly effect, you know, will be will be huge. If we can even inspire one person, that's that's enough. Um, I mean, I hope we inspire more than that, but uh, thank you for giving us this platform, um, for ha being so open uh, to having these conversations and for making this like a very safe and, and good environment because um, it's needed. So thank you so much to you and Kwong for having us here. Yes, same. Uh, thank you so much for having us on. This was a great conversation. And I think it will, uh, it touched on a lot of things that I think a lot of people don't think about. You know, faculty, student, staff, outsider, it doesn't matter. I think you're going to get a lot. You're going to get a lot out of this. Um, also, if anyone out there is struggling with anything or have questions about starting your own business as an undocumented person or you're another undocumented uh, creative, um, feel free to reach out. Instagram is best. You can find me at yamz. W-O-R-L-D or yams.world um, and we can connect and make more community. Uh, if I could leave you with anything is that, you know, the people that you surround yourself with and the community that you build is going to be the number one determination of your success and um, how uh, the opportunities are going to come your way. Uh, so make sure that you have a great support system and a great community around you to support you in anything that you're doing or whatever identity you hold.
Right. To add to that, if anybody is interested in the healthcare field and they need to know like how to navigate, I didn't have resources growing up and now I do. Uh, so if anyone wants to reach out to me through email or Instagram, you know, at M-I-R-Y-M-A-T-U, you know, feel free to reach out. Always down to help. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I will be sure to link all of Brian and Miriam's socials and contact information for anyone who may be more interested in speaking with them. So do not fret if you did not catch the spelling. It will all be there because we also want Brian's TikTok to keep blowing up. So yeah, check them out. And that's all we have for today. Peace and love from Undocu Talks. Undocu -talks.